Hi, and welcome to the Kids Health Info Podcast, a podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by my colleague and good friend, Dr. Anthea Rhodes. Hi, Lexi. Today, we're going to be jumping in and talking about anxiety, which is everywhere, it seems, at the moment. We've got a fantastic guest, so we hope you can stick around and hear some of the pearls of wisdom we've got to share. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. In January this year, at the start of Season 2, we released an episode on anxiety. We'd seen an increase in presentations of anxiety in 2020 as the COVID pandemic began. We saw children presenting at a younger age. We talked about how we as parents can recognise anxiety and where to get help. We hope that by now, mid-2021, things would have changed here in Australia with COVID. But unfortunately, as we record this in August 2021, many states are still in lockdown. Our children and adolescents are in and out of remote learning, and it's really hard for anyone to make plans at this time. Absolutely, Lexi. And I think that with all that we're going through as parents and families and kids and teenagers, it's almost surprising to think that anyone's not anxious. As you mentioned, things are changing all the time. Routines have sort of gone out the window. We've had very heavy news from around the globe actually this week here um, in August 2021, which has added to anxiety for people. So today we really want to um, take the opportunity to have a bit of a deep dive into anxiety, particularly for teenagers, but we know it affects younger children too, and, and many of us as parents. And in doing that, really tackle some of the um, nitty gritty around what parents can look out for, what they might be able to do in the moment, how they can really make a difference to some of these things. So today we are very lucky to be joined by an experienced psychologist, Dr. Zephy Palakis who has worked both in the public and private systems and currently works here at the Royal Children's Hospital as part of our adolescent team. So welcome, Zephy. Thank you very much for inviting me today. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do as a child and adolescent psychologist? Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist, which means I, um, I work with people uh, in terms of assessment and treatment of mental health issues. And I've had specific training in child, adolescent and family psychology. And as a clinical psychologist working with children and adolescents, we typically see people with emotional difficulties, behavioural problems, sometimes educational problems, so learning issues at school or social difficulties. And then the other thing is, because I work at the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, We also see young people here who have medical issues where they can get some benefit from a psychologist's input as well. So I've got teenagers myself and one of the questions uh, that all my friends ask and, and my patients often ask is, how can I tell as a parent if my child's suffering from anxiety if they're not talking to me or telling me about it? Sure, this is an excellent question and a very common one. First of all, anxiety is really common. About one in four people will experience an anxiety problem in their life. But in fact, anxiety is a normal reaction. It's what our body naturally does when we perceive some sort of threat. And uh, it's actually a healthy thing. So for all of us each day, anxiety keeps us safe and helps motivate us to do certain things. For example, uh, anxiety is one of the things that makes me get to work on time. Uh, it's, it's a healthy adaptive response. But sometimes our anxiety um, becomes excessive or um, it can overtake 
um, areas of our life and uh, it can interfere with our everyday functioning. And that's where that's a sign that maybe our young people need some help to actually cope with the anxiety they're feeling and, and come up with some strategies to deal with it. I think it's really important that you've mentioned this this is part of normal life as well. And what we really then need to understand and look out for is when um, we cross the line, and particularly today we're talking about our children and teenagers, so when they cross the line from a functional or healthy anxiety into an anxiety state that might be a negative thing for them or impacting their function. And actually we had a question from a listener, Anna, about this. Hi, it's Anna calling. I'd like to know how you can tell the difference between a normal reaction to the changes that happen when you're a teenager and something to be worried about. Anxiety just seems to be what it means to be a teenager. Anna is spot on there. Uh, The teenage years are years of massive changes biologically and also socially and psychologically. So it's not uncommon that there are a lot of experiences of anxiety in a teenager's life. And in fact, it's quite normal to experience significant anxiety in a teenager's life and anxiety about things that didn't necessarily cause anxiety in a younger child. The way that we tend to discriminate between normal adaptive anxiety versus anxiety that might need a little bit of extra help from someone else is when that anxiety either doesn't get better over time, so parents have tried to help or the young person's tried to do something but it doesn't seem to be getting any better, or when the anxiety starts to interfere with what we call typical functioning, what our young person used to be able to do but they can't do it anymore, or um, when they're unable to do the things that would be typical for their age group. Uh, That's when there's some kind of red flags that maybe we need to be attending to this a little further than just kind of letting it go. What are some of the signs I need to look out for in my child or adolescent that might give me a hint that they're suffering from anxiety when they won't tell me about it? Sure. So not telling you about anxiety and not saying I'm feeling anxious is really common. Uh, Very young children will very rarely use words like that. And even teenagers don't always have the language to talk about their internal psychological experience. So often the first sign to someone else are the physical signs. You're young person might talk about having a tight chest, a racing heart. Um, You might notice appetite changes in your young person or changes in their eating pattern. Uh, Sleeplessness or disturbed, disrupted sleeping is another common one. So there's lots of physical signs of anxiety, but of course those physical signs aren't exclusive to anxiety. They could be explained by other things. So it's not uncommon for a parent to notice these signs in their young person and take their child to the GP just to make sure there's nothing physical going on that needs to be sorted. Uh, Then the next sign that young people may describe or with parents' help might be able to identify in themselves is the psychological signs of anxiety. So that's things like saying I can't get a certain thought out of my head or I can't get rid of this fear experience or I'm worrying all the time or Um, Even noticing when your young person's describing something that's coming up that they might be catastrophizing about it and kind of making it out to be more serious from your perspective than what um, what it might actually be. So those are some of the psychological signs of anxiety. And then, of course, there's the behavioural signs of anxiety. So, again, these are observable things. The most um, common thing to look out for with anxiety is avoidance. Looking for things that your young person is not prepared to do, which 
in your eyes is not a dangerous thing or not a risky thing or it's something they used to be very comfortable doing but are no longer doing anymore. So those are some of the kind of obvious signs. In other other behavioural signs are things like agitation, so kind of being irritable and agitated, um, shorter fuse, uh, sometimes anger is the way it comes out as well um, and, and things like school refusal are often signs of anxiety as well. One of the other things that we've seen occur uh, a lot lately, there's been an increase, is in the number of people who are experiencing eating disorders and disordered eating patterns. And that can be another way uh, in which we see anxiety in our young people. And again, seeking professional help in those situations is really important. And we have recorded um, and released an episode on eating disorders with Dr. Michelle Yo. So please have a listen. It's got lots of tips and information about eating disorders for you. It's great that you've mentioned school refusal yep. there, Zephy, because I think that's one of the most common um, experiences that we're hearing about from parents at the moment and in patients and friends and family. And obviously, we've got a pretty complicated context for that at the moment, because particularly in Victoria, but obviously New South Wales at the moment and other states and territories across Australia, kids have been literally in and out of school. And those transitions are really hard. You know, you've got to build the energy back up and go and then, okay, no, it's not happening now. And some kids are finding that really difficult. So I guess the question is, when is that actually a sign of anxiety, that school refusal, and what can we do about it? It's um, a very complicated topic because most kids are in the same boat at the moment. So it's hard to say, when is it unusual? Mm. Often we look for signs of an unusual response to something to say, well, that's an anxiety response. And so in this context, when so many people are going through very similar things, it's possibly less of an anxiety problem and more of an adjustment issue, adjusting to things being unpredictable, being on and off, we're in or out of lockdown. It's hard to know what to expect. And also the learning environment is very different for children and not everyone engages well uh, in an online forum with their learning and that that in and of itself can be anxiety provoking as well. So it's not surprising that it's time to go back to school, time to go back to regular school. Parents are celebrating it. This is wonderful. The kids are thinking, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I haven't been at school for a while. Will my friends still be my friends? What have I missed out on because I haven't been seeing my friends? How am I going to be going with my schoolwork? There's a lot of questions that kids might have about going back to school at all age levels. And I think as as adults, we experience some of that in the transitions in and out of, you know, working on site. So there's a way to sort of, and, and even just socialising. You feel like you're waiting for the lockdown to end and then it ends and it's like, oh gosh, actually now I've got to get back out there and do all these things. There are also a lot of children and adolescents who prior to COVID and, and not being in lockdown have issues with school refusal that often are due to their anxiety. What are some practical tips as parents we can use to get our kids back to school if they're refusing or not getting out of bed or being withdrawn? The most important thing for me would be to start by talking to the school. Depending on your child's year level, it might be the classroom teacher or it might be the year level coordinator or the person who manages the the kind of the the middle school or the upper school, depending on your child's year level. So first of all, approach the teachers um, or the school staff and say, we're having some trouble getting our child back to school. Uh, What have you got in place? What have you done before for students at your school? Um, Do you have any tips for us as parents to to try and, and get our our young person back to school. There are um, 
uh, also school staff um, that are support staff that may be able to help as well. So there might be somebody who can speak to the child and, and kind of be a bridge between home and school to support them in coming back to school in a safe way. And there are, you know, considerations for things like a gradual return to school for those students who may not be ready to face full-time school five days a week. So there's all sorts of flexibilities we should really consider. Uh, At home, it's about staying calm. That's really important. Modelling calmness, uh, trying to pre-plan so that the mornings aren't busy and hectic. So if possible, have school clothes ready from the night before, have the lunches done. Talk in a positive way to the young person about how you have you know, you believe that they'll actually be fine and that they'll be okay. Uh, Be realistic that the very early part of the day when it's drop-off time is often the hardest time. Uh, And if need be, sometimes it's even worth having a reward system or some sort of uh, acknowledgement of the effort that the young person's put in by actually getting to school. And I've actually had quite a few patients who have had a return to school plan set up between the family and the school, and that's been really effective. And they've also had you know, that in-between person you mentioned. So that person, maybe a school counsellor or one of the um, integration aides might be able to come and meet the child at the gate. They might get 10 minutes to go into a quiet office before re-engaging into a busy classroom. I think all of those practical tips have been really helpful for many of my patients. One of the things that I sometimes hear from parents when um, dealing with the issue of school refusal is a a real difficulty to understand what's behind it. So often they'll be like, but there's no reason. So, you know, they might look for things like, is my child being bullied? You know, are they uncomfortable in the classroom because they're not able to learn well? Is there something about turning up that's a problem? Is it a, a particular child or a particular teacher? And they're really trying to problem solve, which is important. You know, that's part of the process. But what can be difficult, I think, sometimes is with anxiety, there may not be one big cause. How would you go about explaining that to families and helping them to understand? It's not typically something where we can point a finger and say there's one thing and if we fix that one thing, then everything will be fine. It's a complex experience and there's complex reasons why a child may be presenting with school refusal. What I would be probably encouraging families to do is not look for the single cause and not try and fix that one problem, but actually look more at the plan for, well, how are we actually going to overcome the behavioural presentation, which is my child is not able to get to school in a in a feeling happy or at least calm when they get there and and thinking about ways to address the behavioral side without necessarily trying to address the cause addressing the cause involves a lot of energy being expended and it may not necessarily resolve anything unless there is a very specific cause that can be identified and fixed. Yeah. For example, uh, if the issue is that my child is really struggling with maths uh, and we uh, and if we fix the maths thing, then my kid would be happy to go back to school. That's relatively kind of, you can discuss that with the teacher and maybe come up with a modified program for maths or some sort of remediation or something like that. But if the issue is, oh, my kid doesn't want to go to school, but we don't actually know why, you Which could spend a lot. usually the circumstance. That's right. You, you're exactly right. Usually we don't really know why because children often have a lot of difficulty articulating what it is that yep. they're worried about. Um, then you're spending an awful lot of time focusing on the cause. And actually what we want to be doing is encouraging children to develop skills to cope with the feelings, yes. not necessarily sorting the courts. Now, the one thing that I would want to say there is clearly if there's a bullying issue, if there's a safety issue at the school, 
that has to be addressed. So first and foremost, make sure the environment is safe and caring. And then after that, if we don't know what the cause is, then maybe we should be looking at coping strategies and keeping the communication lines open. And I think it's important for the child too, because in some situations you see a lot of pressure for them to produce a cause. Well, what's the problem? What's the problem? And so then they might try to identify something, you know, to try and help everyone get through the situation when in fact for them, as you say, it's an experience, it's a feeling, it's something bigger that needs to be worked through. So we've got an excellent question from John, one of our listeners today. Uh, I'd just like to ask a question about our seven-year-old who's always been pretty anxious generally, but this lockdown she's developed a, a real fear of leaving the house. She doesn't really specify any, any concerns about COVID-19, but she tends to worry more about things like hurricanes, which I, I wonder whether she's picked up from climate change commentary that has been in the media recently. Uh, and we've just found that you know, trying a softly, softly approach when we're in a hurry um, it, it doesn't really work. Um, we've committed to things like not playing the news or the COVID press conferences on TV or radio when the kids are around. And we've been very conscious about not expressing our own anxieties around the house. But we really need tips on how to handle the breakdowns in the moment. Excellent question from John. And uh, it's not uncommon for children to not necessarily be able to articulate what it is that they're worried about. So uh, parents might suspect, is my young person worried about COVID? Is my young person worried about something happening with the climate and, and, and what's happening to the world? Uh, and the important thing is not to necessarily drill down and find out what exactly the problem is. What's often helpful is to, uh, again, remain calm and, and speak to your young person in a, in a calm way and a reassuring way and, and give them a message of hope. I know that you can cope with this even though this is hard. Uh, don't promise that their fears will never become reality because we don't know that for sure because we don't know what their fears are. Mm -hmm. But we can say things like, you know, you're going to be really, really scared when we first go to this place or when we first do this activity that you really don't want to do. But that feeling of scaredness, that's actually going to go down over time and you'll actually begin to feel okay. And I, when we get home and we talk about it after we've got home, we're going to remember that your fear might have started at 10 out of 10 and then after a few minutes it was at 5 out of 10 and then before you knew it, you were actually okay and you weren't noticing it anymore. So giving your child hope, um, giving them messages of coping and modelling the coping yourself. Even if you're feeling anxious, show that you're able to cope with the anxiety um, when the situation arises. I think that's really helpful. Actually acknowledging the child's feeling and validating it is really important, but then talking about strategies to cope and giving them credit for how well they've done, even if it was baby steps. That's really helpful. Thanks, Effie. So great to have some tips there, Zephy, for things that parents can be doing at home, in their own house, when situations are arising. But we know that sometimes it's just not enough and you might feel that you're not winning, that things, as you mentioned before, are not improving, even though it's you've given it some time and you've given it some strategies. So the next question I think a lot of parents struggle with is, you know, when do I need to get help? And following from that, where do I go? When do you need to get help? Certainly get help immediately if you're concerned about your child's safety. 
So if you have any concerns at all about your child keeping safe from themselves or there might be other people that are putting your child at risk, definitely seek professional help immediately. And so you mean that they might be talking about hurting themselves or hurting someone else? What are the yes. signs that you know a parent has to look out for when it comes to safety? So there's obvious signs. You might notice that your child is actually hurting themselves physically or actually are, are talking about or engaging in, in conversation or interaction that is about hurting themselves. Um, you might also hear your young person, particularly teenagers, this tends to occur a bit more, um, talking about overwhelming feelings and they don't know how to cope with them or get rid of them and generally self-harming is about a way of coping with an overwhelming feeling that is just too much. Uh, other signs to look out for that aren't necessarily signs of self-harm but uh, important things to keep in mind with teenagers is a lot of time spent alone in a room very unhappy, very disengaged, uh, not interacting with the family or even friends very much. Those can be signs, not necessarily just of anxiety, but of many other things as well, but are quite worrying signs. And that's where we really want to try and engage with our young person and work out what's going on and seek professional help if we need to. Particularly if there's also been a change in their behaviour. So if they were previously quite a social child or adolescent and they came down for family dinners and now they're in their room withdrawn and, um, you know, really not talking to anyone. That's a really important thing for us as parents to look out for. And I think we had a question earlier from Anna about, you know, how do you spot the difference between normal teenage behaviour and worrying behaviour? And some of those things people think, oh, well, they're just being a moody teenager. So what would you say about, you know, how to decide when it's more than that? Being a moody teenager is is normal and we expect it and we know that we're, we're anticipating a teenager in our, in our home. We think, okay, well, here we go. This will be a bumpy ride, but that's yep. okay. <laughs> uh, most of the time um, when we're experiencing a typical emotional reaction, it's finite. You know, it lasts a short period of time with the exception of grief, yep. uh, which can last longer. Um, but we normally are experience emotionally is finite. You know, we're angry, but we're angry for a short period of time or we're anxious, but the anxiety resolves. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's going on for a little longer or getting worse, they are signs that there might be something going on more than just your typical uh, teenage reaction of getting cranky because you ask them to load the dishwasher or pack something up. So it's really about looking for signs of, are they kind of res returning back to kind of their usual self? Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, great. And so if we are worried as parents, where would you recommend we seek help? So there are lots of things you can do at home to help and support your young person. Uh, things like opening up the communication channels, talking to your young person in a calm way, showing that it's safe to share their experience, even if um, the young person might think that they're being silly or that kind of thing, because sometimes people worry about their own experience being invalid or odd, unusual. Um, but, but when it's beyond what the family can do to support the young person, by all means approach your child's school. If you have a relationship with the school and they might have a wellbeing team that might be able to support, don't forget the family GP. They're a really good resource for information, uh, reassurance around anything physical that might be going on, and also knowing the local resources in the area that might be appropriate for, for the young person. There are also various organisations such as Beyond Blue and the Kids Helpline that can provide really good information to young people and families about kind of managing mental health issues in teenagers and children. 
there are also, of course, psychologists and psychiatrists who are able to help with these sorts of things. And going via the GP is a really useful way of accessing those services. Um, there are sometimes community health centres that might have mental health care providers within the community health centre that might be able to help out as well. Um, and of course, there are local mental health services for people who are eligible to access those services as well. And of course, you can always access a paediatrician, uh, again, via your GP if you don't already have one, or you may already have one involved in your life and by all means, reach out to them too. Of course, if the young person, if you're really worried about their safety, you're worried they might hurt themselves in some way, then it's really important to access emergency care via, for example, an emergency department to get them immediate help in those situations. Yeah, so lots of great avenues for help there. And I think one of the things that probably it's important to mention, because I, I hear this among friends and family myself, is that at the moment, particularly, I think in COVID, where we have seen a rise in, in difficulties with mental health and wellbeing in kids and adults, that it can be really hard to actually get help. So once that decision has been made, oh, I really, I need more, I need some support, that people are coming up against waiting lists, a bit of a brick wall, and feeling like they, they can't get the help they need. And this is a huge challenge across the board. It's an issue in both public and private um, services for lots of different mental health care providers. And generally what we would try and do when we have a waiting list is offer group sessions. And of course, that's far less uh, easy to do in COVID times. Mm. So, um, so there is a lot of waiting list management that is going on. Fortunately, there are some really good resources online that parents can go to. And in fact, there's even um, programs you can do online. It's called Computer Assisted Psychological Therapy. It's got a good evidence base behind it. And for people that are willing and motivated, you can actually engage in therapy online that doesn't involve having to find an appointment with a psychologist um, or, or a mental health social worker or someone like that to, to help out. That's really good for us as parents to know because our kids are very savvy online yes. um, and it's a really good place to start while we're waiting on a waiting list to see a psychologist or a paediatrician or in some cases a psychiatrist. So we'll link some of those resources in our show notes today. And I think also just to reassure parents that if you are worried and even though it can become exhausting, you know, keep reaching out for help. And if you think things are changing, particularly deteriorating for you and your young person, then reach out again and again. And important to recognise and acknowledge that it's hard at the moment and there is work happening in the background to try and change that picture, to drive funding, to improve services. And those of us in the system want that just as much as anyone else. Um, but in the meantime, keep reaching out for help uh, because it's important that people are there to hear you. Okay, so while we're waiting on waiting lists or, or getting some professional help, as parents, what are some of the practical tips that you can suggest that we do at home with our young person? So the first thing that I would um, say is um, one of the things that we typically do when we've got a young person in our family that is anxious is we might think, well, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to bring it up and make it worse. And so we kind of have that, that let sleeping dogs lie kind of approach because talking about their anxiety makes me anxious and makes me upset and then we've got two upset people rather than just one. Uh, that's another example of avoidance. Mm. So what's really important is to actually open up the communication channel and be open and honest and frank and say to your young person, look, I've noticed that you're um, 
teary or I've noticed that you're not catching up with your friends the way you used to or you're not doing the online activities the way you used to. Um, do you want to talk about that? Tell me about that. And remember, it's not, you mentioned this before, Anthea, it's not a one-time conversation. It's actually an ongoing dialogue uh, that may come and go and it might be a long conversation one day and a really short, sharp, I don't want to go there the next. Keep the conversation open and show your young person that you can cope with what they're going to tell you. Uh, if, if it's really bad news, it's okay. I can hear it. I may get upset too, but I can cope with it. It's okay. So model really good coping behaviour. So also be curious. Um, tell me about that. Tell me a little bit more about that. What did you think when that happened? What did you try and do? Kind of open, open what we call um, uh, active listening open conversation without judging, without double guessing or without um, kind of saying, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done something else. Just kind of keep it open to start off with so that you can kind of encourage your young person to think about their experience and put words to it because that can be really helpful to understand what's going on. Uh, talk about your own experience with anxiety as a young kid yeah. or as a as a adult. Um, I often tell the young people that I see um, in clinic about the fact that as a kid myself, I really didn't like swimming lessons. I was very fearful of the swimming pool, didn't like it at all. And kind of how, what sorts of things my family did and what I did to try and cope with that and that it's not easy. Um, so that, you know, there's an awareness that they're not the only ones that have actually had these feelings. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I think it's very hard for us as parents to show Sorry, our own vulnerabilities. Yeah. But it can be really helpful for our young person to know, yep, mum's also feeling really anxious at the moment and a little bit withdrawn or needs her own space. And I think for me personally, talking about some of the things that have helped me or continue to help me. So I reinforced to my kids that when I haven't had a good night's sleep, I'm more angry, I'm agitated. I, if I'm starting to talk really fast, for me, that's a sign that I'm getting anxious and overwhelmed. And I asked them to actually call it out and say to me, hey, mum, are you okay at the moment? And that's been really helpful to have a two-way conversation. It's not just me as a parent telling them what I think they should do. Um, I think the other things as medical professionals, we always talk about let's get um, on top of the kids' sleep when we can or our own sleep, exercise and a bit of movement every single day. It doesn't have to be going for a, a big run. It can just be getting outside, getting some fresh air, trying to eat well hard during um, COVID times, but it is important to try and make sure our young people eat regular meals and have some or majority of healthy food as well. And then I think having a routine can be really helpful and that works for me. I need to know what my day holds. Um, so talking with your young person the night before, what does tomorrow hold? You know, what are you going to do during your breaks of home learning? What have you got to look forward to after school? So really just going back to basics and, you know, having that conversation can be really helpful. I often talk about the idea that if you can reduce the unknowns, you can reduce the worries. And so that's where things like routine and having habits can actually remove some of that white noise and worry because you just, all you have to do is go through the motions rather than spend a lot of time thinking about what they're going to look like and how you're going to do it. 
And the other thing is setting small goals rather than big ones can be really helpful. So think talking to your young person about their day rather than saying, I'm going to finish that essay and that assignment and I'm going to study for my maths test and I'm going to also catch up with all my friends online. <laughs> that can be really overwhelming. Breaking it down and saying, well, how about you, you do out of those 10 things you've listed, how many can you realistically do with minimal effort? And then how many can you realistically do with average effort? And kind of breaking it down and making it permissible to not get everything done because mm. we do have this tendency to just kind of want to get everything done and get it done perfectly. We've got a great question actually from a parent, Stacey, about those demands or requests of our kids. Hi, I'm Stacey. Um, as a parent of a teen, how do you navigate laying down expectations and demands with the risk of how these demands might impact their mental health. Sometimes it feels just like I'm treading on thin ice. Really good question from Stacey. The way that I would tend to look at this one is when we're making a demand of someone, whether it's a child, a teenager or an adult, if it's a reasonable demand, even if the thing we're asking them to do is boring or unpleasant in some way, there might be some annoyance there might be some irritability, but typically we would get over it pretty quickly. We get annoyed when we get asked to empty the dishwasher. We get annoyed when we get asked to take the rubbish bin out, um, but we get over it. Uh, so it's uh, making demands that are reasonable for somebody's age and development is okay to do, and that's not going to cause a mental health crisis in a young person. However, if somebody's already quite stressed or already quite um, experiencing a lot of mental health issues anyway, sometimes it can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm. So it's not about, I can't make reasonable demands of my child because they crack it. It's actually, my kid doesn't seem to be able to cope with what I think is a typical thing for them to be able to do. So that might be another red flag for, oh, we probably need to talk about this a bit more. And actually, just as you said before, Lexi, have a conversation and say, oh, I've noticed that when I ask you to do this, you get really cranky with me. Tell me what that's about. Maybe every time I ask is right in the middle of their, you know, their, their game time with their friends online and I'm just picking my moments badly and that's why I get that reaction. So really explore it in a safe way and say, tell me what's going on so that I know how I can do better. Yeah, so the behaviour is what we see, so that mm. anger or aggression or agitation. But actually, if we're curious and are able to sit with it and, uh, and find out what's upstream from that, what's causing that behaviour, we've got a lot more chance of success in helping our teenager or young person. And I think at the moment where things are challenging, there's a lot of if, you know, your kids are giving you a hard time, then a good place to start is the concept that they're probably having a hard time and trying to perhaps have a conversation about understanding that. One of the most um, underrated tools we have as parents is using silence. So personally, I know when I'm feeling anxious and overwhelmed, I don't want to talk about it with my partner, with my parents, with my friends. I just want someone to sit with me in silence, be empathic and just, you know, be there for me. And I think doing that as a parent with your child can be really valuable for them. They'll tell you if they want you to go away, but sometimes they actually just want you to sit there. Moving on then to a slightly different topic now, we've talked about how schools might help and you've mentioned Zephy a few times that that's a great port of call to go to first. So we had a question from a parent Adele about that. 
Hi, my name's Adele. My question would be um, how to help a school recognise and help children with anxiety, um, especially in this world of being in and out of lockdown and the expectation to power through work and, and try to catch up. This is a very common experience now, both with children in primary and secondary schools. Some of these issues can arise even for the, our prep grade children. Uh, the first thing um, to, to acknowledge here is that this pressure to keep up or catch up is probably being felt by the teachers and the school staff just as much as it's being felt by the students and their parents. So we're probably all being driven a little bit by anxiety. And uh, the first thing that I would probably do is, depending on the child's age, uh, engage with the school and actually say, look, I think my young person might be really anxious about things. I, I don't necessarily know exactly what it is, but what are some of the strategies you put in place at school or what are some of the language you use in your classroom um, when these things are happening so that we can try and manage it at home in a way that's going to be consistent with what you might do at school? Uh, what advice do you have for me to give my child? Sometimes the teacher's sending a specific message message to the child about um, how well they're doing and how they're actually doing okay can be really encouraging and can really help. So it really depends on hopefully having a good relationship with the teacher. For older students where there's ex an expectation of self-management of this so sort of thing, uh, again, I would probably try and tell the year level coordinator um, about it if it's a, a student in secondary school. Um, but uh, the other thing I would do is actually support the young person in this idea of catching up with their schoolwork. What we know is not helpful is things like, well, if you'd done your schoolwork every day like you were supposed to, you wouldn't be in this position because that kind of thing, we might feel gratified in kind of just pointing out the obvious, but it's actually not helpful in getting anyone out of this situation. So instead, what I would do is say, okay, you're feeling overwhelmed about your schoolwork. It feels like you've got to climb a mountain. Mm. No one's going to ask you to climb that mountain. I'm here to back you up on this. What we're going to do instead is we're going to think about what's important and urgent and focus on that first and everything else can wait. So what's important and urgent? It might be a particular English assignment. It might be studying for a particular maths test. Let's just focus on that first. What can we do at home to support you with that? And then if that means that you have to break it down and do it over time, that's fine. Getting something done is better than getting nothing done. It also means that there's some success there. And it does mean sometimes that parents have to help their young person negotiate what schoolwork they are actually going to be able to successfully complete. To advocate for them in that engagement with the school. It is great when the school is on board and there's so much that schools do really well when it comes to helping us as parents and our children to navigate that road back or the challenges that they're having with anxiety. But sometimes we actually don't have that perfect picture. And I know that parents might be experiencing resistance from the school or they might feel like they've got a difference of opinion that they really just can't resolve. What sort of advice have you got for those families? This is a really challenging situation because everyone's experience is likely to be val valid and everyone's opinion is likely to be valid. And sometimes what can be helpful if families feel that they're able to do so is, is have a meeting with somebody at the school that they do trust. Even if it's not the school teacher, it might be the school wellbeing team, it might be the assistant principal, but somebody at the school that they feel they can trust and talk to and just talk things out and come up with a bit of a plan. Uh, it is really difficult because the child 
child is caught in the middle mm. uh, and it's almost like having two bickering kind of adult figures trying to sort a situation out for a child and they're approaching it in a different way. We know that that causes tension in the child. So where possible, I'd keep the child out of those interactions and try and sort it out by starting with you know a trusted person at the school. And if they can't even find that, so in some situations, parents feel like the way the school might be approaching something is harmful even for their child or they, they just really don't feel like they've got an ally there. Sometimes that's where it's helpful to then get the support from an external professional and just get some advice. How would you handle this situation? Uh, and, and think about what what are our options here? Um, what, what extra support can we get? If we're not getting it from inside the school, can we potentially start with getting some help outside the school to cope with this as we come up with a plan about how we're going to address the school situation? So that might be the GP. It might be a paediatrician. I'm sure, Lexi, you, as I have too, have played this role for families at times. And Zephy, like yourself, a psychologist. Or, or a counsellor of some sort. I'm just going to shift topics a little bit now. and um, I'm really curious um, about the management of anxiety and, and other psychological issues when a teenager comes to a psychologist. What do you use as psychologists as your tools of trade? So the first thing I would do as a psychologist is probably work out what the anxiety presentation looks like. So which disorder, for want of a better word, best describes what is happening for this young person. So common ones that we might refer to are things like generalised anxiety disorder or a specific phobia, for example, they're quite common ones, because different types of therapeutic strategies work better for different types of anxieties. Uh, anxiety has a lot, of an a lot of evidence behind it in terms of what interventions work, both psychological and pharmacological, so medical interventions as well. So medications. Medications, yes. Yeah. So there are some medications that can be very effective. Uh, that is not my area of expertise. But we'll have a chat about and, and that in the <laughs> But in terms of psychological therapies, um, there are many psychological therapies that have been uh, used to, to, to treat anxiety or to manage anxiety. Um, and there are many that have been researched as well. The ones that have got the best evidence base at the moment are cognitive behavioural therapy, behavioural therapy, and computer assistance psychological therapy. So behavioural therapy involves really focusing on the behavioural side of the anxiety and looking at ways in which we can modify the behavioural response, usually with rewards and contingencies and sometimes environmental changes, just to change the actual behaviour itself. And behavioural approaches can be really helpful for things like obsessive compulsive type behaviours um, or even phobias. Sometimes behavioural therapy can be really effective there. So Zephy, can you give us an example of where you'd use behaviour therapy as a psychologist? Sure. So let's go back to something we spoke about earlier. For example, school refusal. So we might have a very young child who can't describe what it is that they're actually concerned about or what's stopping them from feeling like they want to be at school. So our focus might be on the behavioural side and actually encouraging the child to get to school somehow. So behaviour therapy would be about looking at the behaviour we're trying to get to, what's our goal, breaking it down into smaller, more achievable chunks. And then when the young person achieves that behaviour, we reward them. And we've got a pre-established reward that we've negotiated with the young child so that that way they master it, they achieve it, they get rewarded for it. And then we keep building on their sense of, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can cope and make it more extensive. So we might say, OK, we don't expect you to go to school all day, every day through the week, but we're going to make sure that you get there 
every Monday morning, every Wednesday morning and every Friday morning until morning break, until recess. And and that might be the first part of your behaviour plan with a reward built in as part of it. And then you build up on that. That's an example of behaviour therapy. And does that work better with the younger children, the reward system, or does it also work with adolescents and teenagers? Well, it actually works with everybody, including dogs, would you believe? But um, husbands. husbands, everyone. What we tend to do with um, older, older students and adults is we add the cognitive component to it because that's when you start to become more aware of your internal world as you progress from childhood to adolescence. Children can do cognitive behavioural therapy too, but it's not always as easy for them to access this kind of thinking pattern. But for adolescents, they're beginning to become aware of the internal world and put words to it. And um, with cognitive behavioural therapy, we add the cognitive part. So we do the examining our thoughts, thinking about what's happening in a situation, looking at our behaviour in that situation, determining whether our behaviour is affected by our thoughts and can we adjust our thoughts to then affect our behaviour. So it's an extension of behavioural therapy. And you talked about rewards, Zephy. So what sort of rewards would you use as an example? They've really got to be rewards that are relevant and salient to a young person. So for, for younger kids, it might be things like um, tokens that enable them to stay up a little later at night because that can be a really um, exciting thing for a younger child. Um, for adolescents, it might be things like be, being able to catch up with their friends when they're allowed to more than usual or um, being able to have more time on their device or something like that. Some families use money as a reward. Other families prefer not to do that. We try to discourage food as a reward um, just because we don't want to set up um, unfortunate eating habits because we're trying to encourage our children to to learn a new behaviour. But it can be whatever is comfortable and appropriate for the family. And sustainable, I guess, because you've got to be dishing this out again and again. So start small, but make it really relevant for your child or adolescent. Okay, so you've mentioned cognitive behavioural therapy and behavioural therapy. The other really interesting one that you mentioned was computer-assisted psychological intervention. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So most of the time, uh, there's there's live online therapies, like eHeadspace, for example, offers um, live online therapies. Uh, that's a little different. And f- there's also forums. That's also different. Computer-assisted psychological therapy is generally taking the cognitive behavioural programs and adapting them into a computer model, which can be delivered like as a module. So you might do part of the work yourself, and then you might have a check-in with a therapist from time to time as you do this course. So it's still doing the same types of intervention, but it's more led by you, timed by you, with a professional looking in and, and, and checking in and being your coach. And there's different models of this for that, that are available generally through universities um, where you can can kind of pick the the thing that's right for you. Okay, so how do parents find out about those uh, models or computer-based programs? So one of the ones that um, we're aware of that has got um, a good research base behind it um, is the BRAVE program through the University of Queensland. So that's a locally made program that can be accessed by families. Uh, You go to the University of Queensland website and and look for the BRAVE program and you'll be able to find information there about that. So we can put some links up on the show notes for parents who might be listening and thinking, great, I really want to have a look at that. So as paediatricians, we often get asked the question, when do we use medication for anxiety? And I might put that to you. When do you start thinking about talking 
about medication with adolescents and their parents and when do you then go on to prescribe it? Yeah, so I think there's um, a couple of different situations where you might find you're at the point where medication is the thing that you need to be turning to. Firstly, there's a situation where a young person may have had quite extensive work with a psychologist. They've tried a lot of the things that Zephy's been talking about today, and there's a sense that things are not moving in the right direction, or perhaps things are going backwards. So that might be a situation where we think, okay, we might want to add medication into this picture and continue to work as a team, obviously with the psychologist, the young person and the family, to make some progress in a way that we feel can't be achieved with psychological therapy alone. There's obviously a conversation that needs to be had there. There's a role for the young person and their own feelings and understanding of what medication will mean for them and for the parents as well. So it's very much a collective decision. The other situation, which is is relatable in some ways or related in some ways, is where A young person is so debilitated by their anxiety that they really can't function at all in different uh, aspects or capacities to the extent that they can't access psychological therapy. So they're not able to um, be in a place where they can think enough to actually work with a psychologist and make some progress. And they're, if you like, paralysed really by their anxiety. And in that situation, the medication might be the thing that has to come first to actually allow them then to access the psychological therapies that are ultimately going to be a big part of the solution going forwards. I think that's right, Anne. I always tell my families, medication alone is not the answer. You might, your young person might need medication uh, if they're really debilitated to start, but then psychological intervention is very important. So we work very closely together with psychologists um, to really, you know, help our young people with severe anxiety. Yeah. And I think without getting into details about different types of medications, because that's really not what today's about, we really want to hear the great stuff we've heard from Zephy because the psychological therapy really is so important and key to managing anxiety. But some medications will treat um, anxiety sort of overall, if you like. Other roles for medication can be to do with certain aspects. So medication for sleep, for example, as an isolated um, factor in the picture that is contributing to the anxiety might be a place that you start. Uh, And then obviously further on from there, you might have actual anti-anxiety medications or things that might treat specific situations. But ultimately, those things are only part of the picture. And it's really that psychological therapy alongside other aspects that's going to make the difference. Okay. So, Zephy, what does the future hold for our young people or ourselves with anxiety? People always ask me, is it going to be this way forever? Once I've had anxiety, am I going to be, in inverted commas, an anxious person? And is there anything we can do to help prevent further anxiety episodes or generalised anxiety? Well, the good news is that there is really good effective intervention that we can use for anxiety and uh, anxiety interventions by psychologists are skill building interventions. So when you've learnt a skill, you can then apply it in lots of places. So while you might have a predisposition to respond in a somewhat anxious way, 
in different situations as you go through life, you will have skills that will help you get through those situations. The goal isn't to never experience anxiety. That's not realistic or even healthy. But the goal is to have coping strategies to help you get through those situations. So it is hopeful. Um, in terms of our broader society, it certainly feels like an epidemic of, of anxiety at the moment and, and there's a lot of reasons why we can identify in our society that that might be happening. Uh, however, I'm hopeful because we're so much more aware of anxiety and how it presents now in all age groups. We're talking about it a lot more. Even in primary school, there are healthy education, uh, there's healthy education around anxiety, around mental health and well-being, uh, which is really important because we're recognising it early. We're building resilience in our young people, teaching them skills from a young age in terms of how to cope with stressful situations, which is really important. And we're learning more and more about, about anxiety every day. We're learning more about the physical aspects of anxiety, the psychological, and in fact, there's more research going into medications and psychological therapies that might be helpful, both as a preventive approach and also as a treatment at the other end. So I'm actually quite hopeful. I always say to my friends that, you know, I think our kids will end up being amazing copers after what they've been through over the last few years. They are developing resilience that many of us didn't develop as young people. And, you know, I think we have to keep telling our, our kids what an amazing job they're doing. They are coping with things that our generation have not had to. I think one of the hardest things that I've had to experience having had anxiety before is something called anticipatory anxiety. So many of us who have anxiety fear the next episode of panic or fear that anxiety coming back. We can sense that overwhelm. And one of the lessons I've learned is to try and change my relationship with anxiety, change the self-talk. So trying to move anxiety and, and the talk about it off centre stage and just have it in the background, a bit like having a radio in the background. This is a really common experience. Uh, people don't think of anxiety in that way as a, as a oh, I'm worrying about the future. I'm worrying about my worry in the future. But that is a very big part of our anxiety experience. Sometimes kids have this label and it, it feels a little bit like they're carrying it with them like a burden. And every challenge or new experience they come to, they're thinking, oh, I'm anxious. And that anticipatory anxiety might kick in for them. So how can we help our children and young people put that on the side, if you like? So I think talking to young people about being anxious uh, is a normal thing. We all feel anxious at different times and some people feel anxious a little bit more than others and that is okay. But anxiety is actually something can be it can be helpful. It gives us messages about how we're feeling about things and how we're feeling about the world. And really it's telling us something that we need to pay attention to and think whether we need to do something differently about it. But at the same time, being anxious doesn't mean you're always anxious. You are so many other things apart from sometimes also experiencing anxiety. And let's think about all the other things we are as well. And anxiety is just one of those words that happens to be in our life along with everything else. Absolutely. Zephy, that was an incredibly helpful discussion. I've learned so much personally and hopefully um, our parents and, and teenagers and children who listen to this will take away one or two messages that they can then use in their own life right now. 
Absolutely. I've sat here thinking I'd like you in my living room someday, Zephy, as I'm sure many people have, but hopefully by doing this today, we have given lots of listeners out there the chance to have just a little bit of Zephy with them on the journey. What's a final thought you'd like to leave parents with today? My final thought would be always approach anxiety with hope. There's always ways that things can get better. Sometimes they get better by themselves. Sometimes we need a little bit of extra help for things to get better. But there's always hope that things will improve. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your preferred podcast platform and please subscribe. And we've heard about some great resources today, so we'll pop those up on the show notes for people to have a look at. Thanks so much for listening today. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice. Support is immediately available by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or by calling Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800.